Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Michael, Wednesday night again. October 5th. October 5th. That's the date. What's what's going on, man? What's up? How's Enjoy, your life? Enjoying the month of October. That's uh, right. You know, it's... Uh, Football season, lots to enjoy on the weekends at this point. You got, we were talking with my son the other night. You got NFL football happening right now, Major League Baseball, and NBA just started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so where we were in a sports desert a few months ago with nothing really happening, uh, people that like sports are very happy right now. Yeah. And Fall pr- really Premier the League. Time Don't forget that. And Premier League, too. I, it's hard for – I'm trying to catch on. I know. Trying I know. to catch on. I know. Leeds United is my team. You heard it here for first, folks. Yeah. I think I've said all the jokes before, so I, I, got, I got nothing there, guys. <laughs> it's okay, hockey man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which the NHL season does start soon, too, as well. So there you go. Got all the major sports going. Um, okay, fellas, before we jump into tonight's programming, question of the week for you. Interested on where you're going to land on this one. Um, if you were not engaged in your current vocation, what would you be doing? And you can take this as like dream job, or you can take this as like hmm. a job I wish I would have done. Um, what do you think? Yep. G. Yeah, I think this one's an easy one for me. Uh, and it's something that I kind of dabbled in even, uh, I want to say moonlight. Um, I would, I'd probably be a writer, songwriter, maybe a producer, um, that just, when I've dabbled in it, I've just had so much fun. Yeah. And I, that would be, I'd love to be one of those folks to say, you know, never worked a day in my life because I've had so much fun. Um, and I think that might be one of those jobs for me. Mm. I've worked lots of days. Yeah. As have I. <laughs> as have I. Yeah. Uh, I'd say if money were no object, if I could do anything that was like clearly a vocation, but something that I'd be interested in doing. I think it would be really cool to have a, to open a, uh, craft butcher shop. Huh. Um, uh-huh. like a, a like hey, a, I know what a butcher shop is. What yeah, is but a like craft? a, just like a nice high end uh-huh. custom cuts craft butcher shop. Yep. All hand cut, no saws. So do you like serve whiskey while they wait for their meat? That type of thing? Hey, man, whatever, Good. whatever you want, you know? <laughs> yep. Um, you know, cause, uh, if you've ever tried to like, custom order beef or something you're kind of limited into uh like a pretty standard kind of mm-hmm. you have one or two options basically a lot of times yep. so i thought it'd be cool to open a, a like a uh a butcher shop called truly custom meats where like you legitimately hmm. can go cut by cut and have the butcher tell you if you get this then you're not going to get this or if you get if you get it cut this way then you're limited over here and actually explain, explain to you when you, hmm. when you desire a particular kind of cut, what the butcher actually has to do to get that for you and what that does to other parts of the animal. Cause a lot of people don't understand that. Wow. That's pretty neat. And so would you do the butching butchering? Hey man, I've given, I've given mm-hmm. this all of 45 seconds of thought. So, yeah. <laughs> or would you just be the guy like <laughs> who's like shaking hands and, and kissing babies? Up no front? idea. I just think so. Like, when I've quote unquote butchered meat, whether that's like a deer or like cutting up a pork loin from Costco or something, I've always just really enjoyed it. There's something yep. very cathartic about <laughs> this is going to sound so weird. There's something very <laughs> cathartic 
about a nice sharp knife sliding through flesh. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, this is one of those wow. jobs that I feel I feel like we could probably make your dreams come true if you wanted to be a yeah. butcher. <laughs> yeah. Like now, if you wanted to own your own boutique butcher shop, that's a different story. Well, that, that's, that's what that's you want. Kind of what yeah. I'm getting, you know, but it, if yeah, you wanted so. to be a butcher, we could probably go uh, find yeah, that job tomorrow, uh, right? Yeah, I, I think yes, yes, <laughs> probably. Um, I think my my family would have a lifestyle adjustment probably. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm sure. You know. that's funny. Wow. Um, well, I didn't know uh, that dream job w- would be the uh, o- an option here. If I could do anything in the world, it would probably be playing professional golf. Can't imagine anything more fun. And I'm sure every job gets old, but traveling uh, from great city to great city, playing the best golf courses around the world and country. Mm. Um, and so that would probably be what I'd choose now, another dream job of mine, because I don't think I could actually do it, it takes so much work and effort and energy and, and intellect, is I always thought it'd be fun to be a doctor. Yeah. But you talk to doctors and everybody, you know, you talk to anybody and they'll share with you what they don't like about their job, Yeah. right? And they all have what they would want to do too. And so it seems like it would be, a, I, I like it for the prestige. Like I'd yeah. want to be a surgeon, you know, or a, a pediatric Neurosurgery, you know, it would be like it would be for the prestige factor more than anything, hmm. and that's probably not a good reason to go after <laughs> <Yeah>. a job. <laughs> You'd have to walk everywhere in slow motion. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, what tour would you be on if you were a oh, professional I, golfer? Well, this is a, a live, hot, live question. The line, PGA Tour wire. for sure. Okay. There um, you go. The tour that has made uh, history. And that actually stands for values. There it is, folks. Planting his flag with the yep. PGA Tour. Love it. <laughs> Jacob, with the eyebrow raise. He's like, is there another tour? <laughs> Clearly, I'm not a golfer. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a person or two listening that gets gets the nuance of that question yeah. and answer. Well, good stuff. Uh, Okay, folks, if you've been joining us for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're working our way through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So last week, um, discussed the the portion of this sermon where Jesus talks about his followers being um, salt and light and all the the nuances that go into that metaphor there. Um, Michael, do you want to kind of take that baton and give us a running start into the next section here? Yep. And so uh, you might remember the the first week that we looked at the Beatitudes, we're talking about the character of a disciple. This is who you are if you're in Christ. Last week, like you mentioned, we talked about salt and light. That's the results that we can expect when a disciple enters a world that operates by different standards. We're meant to be countercultural. The Beatitudes are countercultural, and um, being salt and light in this world uh, is Christ's encouragement to lean in to that countercultural lifestyle. And tonight, we're going to be moving into a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that starts in verse 17 and then moves through the end of chapter 5, where Jesus is describing the laws and principles that guide the behavior of a disciple so that we can actually move out and be salt and light, so that we can be countercultural in this world. And um, as we talk about some of these um, topics uh, tonight, like anger and lust and divorce and keeping our promises, uh, you'll see that Jesus is setting the bar um, extremely high. Uh, in fact, it's you, you would say it's supernatural mm-hmm. um, because you can't 
Um, you can't obtain Christ's encouragements and his expectations in our natural state. And so it, it would be um, perfectly right to think about Christ's call as we read how he um, outlines the law as needing uh, convert. You need to be born again. Uh, you need supernatural power. Uh, and, you know, that'll, that'll hopefully be obvious as we see some of the standards that Jesus sets for us here at the end of chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Yep. It, it's almost as though this section could be almost a little mini sermon in itself. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because he starts with this kind of, cause he's going to go into these various topics and, and the refrain becomes, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he, he mm-hmm. takes an, an aspect of the law and kind of ups the ante and, and puts a, a, a ceiling on it. Um, but he starts kind of with this, uh, almost like a preamble. I'll, I'll read it because yep. it's just four verses. Yep, Starting in verse should. 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's kind of, uh, uh, I say this is kind of the preamble because it then kind of launches into this discord on all these other mm-hmm. uh aspects here like he's going to talk about anger lust divorce oaths retaliation etc um so i yep. michael i don't know where you want to go from here oh, yeah. you want to just kind of launch into each of these or do you have some overarching thoughts on on the themes here no i think you're setting us up well to talk maybe for a minute about that preamble as you call it or introduction in 17 to 20 and in order to understand what jesus is saying here context is always king when you're reading the scriptures of course and so you've got to place yourself in the original context, uh, put yourself in the place of the original audience. And you've got to know that the scribes and the Pharisees are beginning to wonder, this is a prophet of God. Obviously, he's teaching as someone who has authority. He's performing miracles. What is his relationship to the Old Testament law? That's the question they have. And you can understand why they have this question, because Jesus violated the traditional Jewish understandings of the law, but not the law itself. What I mean by that is oftentimes you see the Pharisees get upset when he does what? Uh, Like heals sick people. Heals sick people. Um, But you see um, them get upset a lot when he violates the Sabbath. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting. You know, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, and um, they get into it uh, often. You know, Jesus' disciples are violating the Sabbath. He's violating. So what's your relationship to the law here, Jesus? Not just the Sabbath, but there's other things I'm sure you could think of off the top of your head. Healing people on the Sabbath. That's, I mean, that's, that's what, what I was exactly thinking. you're just thinking, probably. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, eating on, you know, plucking grain um, yeah. in, in the fields on the Sabbath. And so... Um, folks are wanting to know what's Christ's relationship to the law. And he kind of, he explains himself here in these verses that you just read. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And for those of you that don't know, the law was the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the prophets uh, were everything after that, basically. And so Jesus has the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in mind when he uses the phrase law and prophets. He hasn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
He says, truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is the smallest um, letter in the Hebrew alphabet, not a dot, like just a a small little um, marking in the Hebrew alphabet is going to pass away um, until all the law is accomplished. And so Jesus is really talking about, you know, the permanence of God's law here. Um, And uh, he didn't come to wipe the law away. He came to actually fulfill the law on our behalf because we couldn't do it on our own due to the sin that resides in each one of us. Um, And so he talks about the permanence of the law here. Um, He talks about the practicality of the law here, especially when we get into these seven different topics that he discusses after this foundation. Um, I mean, the law is very practical. He's talking about anger and divorce and lust and keeping our word. Um, And then uh, he talks about how the law is very personal. Um, The law actually um, has something to say to each person personally and should, um, you know, bring us up short in a lot of ways uh, when it comes to us reading it and then measuring our lives against it. Um, And so um, this foundation, it was it was uh, really important, um, especially when you understand the context. Let me ask you to define a phrase here that is is used in the text, and we'll, you and I throw it around sometimes too, but it, it can feel si- kind of churchy mm-hmm. um, to folks who are unfamiliar. What would it? What does it mean to fulfill the law? Because if I'm if I'm sitting here in my own culture and context, I kind of understand what the law is. It's kind of the 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 statutes. It's the things that you don't. That, that say you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. It's the things that impose penalties on you if you mm-hmm. do something. So like to fulfill the law, that's not, that's a category that seems a little strange to me. Yeah. Um, if I, if I'm understanding the law most colloquially, like I, I would never think of like, how do I fulfill the law against embezzlement or something? Yeah. Like, so what does it mean not just not what does it mean for Jesus to have fulfilled the law, but what does it mean abstractly to fulfill a law or the law? And then we can talk about how, what that means uh, in relationship to Jesus. Yeah. I think there's probably a, a few different aspects uh, that we could talk about here. I mean, I immediately think of Luke chapter 24 when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples after his resurrection. And then he takes them and he uses this same phrase through the law and the prophets and shows them how everything was pointing to him. Mm-hmm. And so um, you could think of fulfill as a terminal point in some ways, um, not a terminal point in terms of like the law is, you know, no longer binding, mm-hmm. but, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, um, the long awaited Messiah, the one that is going to, um, that was to be expected um, that all the law pointed to. The other way you could think about it is Jesus accomplished something on our behalf. Yeah. Like if I'm going to fulfill something, there's an instance there where you could say I'm accomplishing it. Um, I'm completing it. And so um, not only do all the law and the prophets point to him, but when he arrives, he actually perfectly actively obeys God's law on our behalf. And so you could say that the law was waiting to be fulfilled by God's people and they come continually came up short uh, from fulfilling the requirements of that law. And Jesus here is coming to say, I've come to fulfill it perfectly. Um, And so, you know, those are the first two things that just come to mind. I'm wondering if you've got anything on yours. um, 
like this is where I I understand exactly what you're saying, but I'm also trying to think of what if I didn't, mm-hmm. and then um, if I had to just draw an analogy to our civil law, yep, what would it mean to fulfill it? And I think maybe something to point out might be that our legal code is kind of a set of things that you are a set of penalties imposed for misdeeds. Whereas old Testament law, there's definitely like thou shalt nots, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also active commands to do something. Yep. Like honor your father and mother. Well, like I can, it's, it's fairly easy to say, and like we're going to get into this, right? It's fairly easy to say, I've not murdered. Mm-hmm. It's harder to say that I have honored my father and mother because it, it's easier to conclude the negative that I've not done something than it is to say I have somehow achieved this level of, of uh, honor towards my parents to where I can say that I have I guess now we'll use the word fulfilled this mm-hmm. call under the law to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe when we think about fulfilling the law, it's like Jesus has gotten to the point where he's done what the law has, has called him to do. Yeah. So it, our legal code doesn't really allow for someone to fulfill the law, mm-hmm. I guess in like all lowercase letters. Um, so when we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law, it can be a little bit confusing, but we have to understand that the law in question here is not simply penalties imposed for misdeeds, um, but it is also active requirements for or requirements for activity. Oh, sure. Like, these absolutely. are the things you must do, Yeah, which is a little bit harder to conclude that you've done them, yep. which is like the whole problem with a problem, lowercase p problem with the law. It's like, mm-hmm. how much is enough, right? Yep. Um, and it, it, you know, it's, you get me thinking too, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. And so he's putting it in contrast to, you know, he's not getting rid of the law and the prophets. And it's interesting. He doesn't say the law. He says the law and the prophets, which is understanding the entirety of the old Testament. He says, I haven't come to abolish the old Testament. I've come to fulfill the old Testament. And so, I like what you're saying. I mean, Jesus fulfills the law by knowing and doing the Old Testament perfectly, inside yeah. and out. He came as not just the great teacher of the law, but more importantly, he came as the great doer of the law. Um, he came to do what we couldn't. And so another way to think about it is you think about all the great characters in the Old Testament, Moses, David, um, uh, King um, you know, Solomon, um, Abraham. Um, and Jesus is basically saying, I'm, I, you know, I'm the better Moses. I'm the better David. I'm the better Abraham. He's the fulfillment too of all the sacrificial and ceremonial system. Mm-hmm. And so I think of Hebrews in some ways, the book of Hebrews, uh, when I think of him fulfilling the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great way to think about how he came to fulfill the ceremonial law and actually put that portion of God's law and prophets to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't bring a goat or a lamb or uh, a turtle dove to church anymore because Jesus very literally fulfilled certain aspects of the law. Um, and I'm thinking of the ceremonial law. I mean, he did the he he fulfilled the moral law too. Um, and um, 
you know, we could talk about the civil law, but that would be uh, a more nuanced conversation yeah. at that point because um, that was instituted for Israel as a nation state. Uh, you could obviously say Jesus was the was the perfect Israelite, um, and so he would have fulfilled those laws as well if they were still uh, intact in his day and age. But they weren't because mm-hmm. they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, no longer crafting their own uh, laws that had a whole lot of significance and teeth to them in terms of them being their own nation state. Sure. You know, they didn't have a king on the throne. Yeah. They didn't have the ability to enforce many of their laws if they came into conflict with the Roman laws at the time. So that's a completely different conversation, probably. i got a quick question. And if this, this is a rabbit trail, you guys don't want to go down. We can just kick it to maybe another pod. Um, at the uh, potential for showing my biblical ignorance, where did this zeal come from? Because as I'm, if as I read the Old Testament, Sadducees, Pharisees, these guys who are zealous for God's law, that doesn't seem to be the problem. It's folks forgetting God's law. They get, you know, exile. Nobody's honoring God anywhere. You have a couple of folks pop up. Uh, the prophets calling people back, and then you have the intertestamental period, or you have the you know the, the building of the second temple, mm-hmm. but you never get a picture that there are these figures who are taking God's law super seriously. At least I don't, I haven't run into to where there's these shots taken at these type of figures in the Old Testament mm-hmm. saying, you know, stop putting a yoke on people that they can't bear uh you know that that doesn't seem to be the prophetic uh, impulse mm-hmm. to go after um for lack of a better term church leadership um yeah in the old testament and so historically and i just don't know the answer I, do what happened i guess something must have happened in that intertestamental period that mm-hmm. this kind of popped up because it certainly doesn't seem to be Yep. the problem that the Lord's dealing with in the vast mm. majority of the Old Testament. See, that's an interesting question. And I also would push back a little bit because when I think of the prophets and specifically the minor prophets and even the major, the five major prophets, I think of the prophets speaking against the people of God just mm-hmm. as vehemently as they're speaking against the surrounding nations. They do both. Right. But they certainly are calling God's leadership um, to task uh, in the words that they're using. And um, and so you even get a sense in the New Testament where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and, and he says things like, you're just like your fathers have always been. You're just like God's people have always been, whitewashed tombs, um, maybe looking alive on the outside but dead on the inside, leading my people astray. And so... Um, I guess not to not to push back on UG personally, but I don't know if I'd buy the premise. Okay, um, is what I'd say uh, of God's prophets not speaking against God's leaders because I think yeah. that's actually one of the primary targets of the prophets in the Old Testament is the leadership of God's people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I guess what he's, I guess the impression that I've gotten is what the prophets tend to speak to the leadership about. Hmm. And I get the impression it's usually about worshiping other gods. 
it's you not I don't typically get the the feel that it's about uh posturing. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys are you know taking the law out of context. Um those kind of that kind of pushback from the prophets of Yep. So, I don't know. I and I could be wrong. I I it was just something that mm-hmm. I kind of was like, wow, this something must have happened because a lot of the stuff that I read in the Old Testament is about get get these Baal worshiping things off, yep. tear them all down. This is God's country, mm-hmm. that type of stuff, and not this type of uh, calling the priest yep. class to task. So I think that the context too has a lot um, to do with how God's people are behaving, because in the Old Testament, when they actually have their own nation state and they actually are enjoying prosperity and, and in some ways peace, and they're meant to be a light to the nations. Uh, they begin worshiping other gods and are attracted to um, the surrounding nations and their customs and their cultures and their religions. And God comes and calls them out for that particular reason. That's their, that's their temptation when things are going well in the Old Testament. They're not fulfilling their duty to be a light to the nations and to follow God with all their heart. In the New Testament, you have a completely different context where they don't have their own nation state. They're under the authority of the Roman Empire at this point. And you got to think that they're trying to figure out how to obtain God's favor, for lack of a better way to say it, I guess, once again. How are, how are they going to behave in such a way where they can actually make sure the Messiah and the Savior come? And so God's leadership in the Old Testament was comfortable, and they weren't fulfilling their task. Gotcha. And here they're, they're not comfortable, and they're looking to maybe fulfill their task in a way that God never intended. And so they think that if we can just get everything right, if we can behave ourselves um, if we get the externals in order, maybe we'll um, get political power back. Then, yeah, God might smile upon us once again. Interesting. Um, and so, I mean, if you think about the context, it, it it's certainly an interesting thought study yeah. there. Um, but but the Pharisees, for instance, so the Pharisees were were a sect that were popping up. And like I said this past Sunday, and we've said before, they weren't dark, shadowy figures. They were folks that people looked up to. Um, people would have looked at Pharisees and wanted to emulate them. They were seen as religious people in in, in the positive way. Um, but Jesus comes and, and calls them to task because they're outwardly religious, but inwardly, like uh, Jesus would say, they're 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 you know tombs full of um, dead things. Um, and so that's really what he's getting at here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking us away from the external and driving us more to the motivational structure, um, the heart of, uh, of a person. And that's where the, the Pharisees really, you know, come up short so much. They also misunderstand God's law in a lot of ways, which we'll talk about, I guess, as we move through each of these, um, topics that Jesus hits on. Yep. So we could hit each of them individually, but I think we'd be here for for quite a long time. I I think maybe we can we can discuss these uh, generally because they follow a consistent pattern, and then where, where there's interest, we can we can dive into to a couple of things. Um, but for each of these, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and, and loving enemies, 
Jesus, Jesus has this pattern where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So I'll, I'll read the, the lust one because it's kind of concise, uh, just really quick. You have heard it said, um, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this same pattern is, is repeated with all of these other ones. And so, Michael, I'm wondering how, how you would phrase what Jesus is doing here. Um, my, my stab at it is that he's, he's taking an expressed portion of the law, do not commit adultery, and um, um, doing a couple of things, m- taking what appears to be relatively easy to conclude that you've done it, and making you think twice about whether you've truly fulfilled the intent of that particular command. Um, well, I guess I guess that's it, but there's a couple of elements in there. He's kind of upping the ante and, and establishing, it, establishing a principle where you can't just do the bare minimum and conclude that you're mm-hmm. righteous or that you're a law follower. Yeah. So six antithesis here, and uh, and you just you know framed it. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. I mean, just there is uh, uh, an implicit claim to authority. Jesus is basically saying, you know, this is how you understand the law and the prophets, but you are misunderstanding the intention of the mm-hmm. law and prophets. And so this is where, in the introduction a few weeks ago, we talked about the floor and the ceiling. This is exactly where it comes into play. The Pharisees were concerned with the floor of the law and the prophets. What's the minimum that we can do externally in order to fulfill, as far as we understand it, the law of God? And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. You know, you're thinking about the ceiling and I'm here to point, and you're thinking about the floor and I'm here to point you to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that that's really what Jesus is doing here. Um, he is uh, pushing beyond external deeds to probe the motives that lead to those deeds. And so if you look at the Old Testament, divorce is a good one here because he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I said, you just read it, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there's other portions of the scripture that talk about you know, Moses allowed you to give a certificate of divorce to your wife because of your hardness of heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a concession by God. It was never the original intention. Um, and here Jesus is trying to push them back to the original intentions of the law. They're reading the law basically, what's the least I can do, as I mentioned. And in that day and age, you know, when Moses gave the law and said you could divorce your wife if you gave her a certificate, that was actually kind and generous in Old Testament times. At least the Israelites had to give a certificate of divorce to a woman that they left. You know, other countries, other nations did not do that. They just left. Um, Women were not treated well at all. Um, And so that was a concession, but it was never the original intention. And so Jesus is putting us back to the original intention. And even in other places like Matthew 18, he says, you can't divorce. I mean, in the Old Testament, they could divorce for any reason as long as they gave their ex-wife a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is even pushing it further, saying, no certificate of divorce anymore unless you experience uh, sexual immorality on, on the part of your spouse. And so um, he's, he's basically abolishing what the Pharisees and the scribes understood to be the, you know, the operating procedure of the day. 
Um, but all that to say, if you get nothing else, um, the, the summary would be Jesus is going after the motivations, not the actions. Yeah. He's going after the heart. Um, not that the actions don't matter, but if the actions aren't coming from a heart that's changed and a heart that seeks to love God and love neighbor, then they're not really um, glorifying the Lord or um, benefiting that person because, I mean, it just leads to pride. The Pharisees were fairly prideful people. Yeah. And one of the reasons they were prideful is because they could, in their mind, look at all the laws, and I've got it right here in front of me. Um, there were 613 separate commandments. Pharisees divided them into 248 to do and 365 to abstain from, and they were scrupulous in keeping these laws that they had made. And that's why Jesus says in verse 20, and this is really, this is, this is the summary verse probably that leads into what we're talking about. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you understand the people looking at the Pharisees and scribes as righteous people that they looked up to, you could imagine they would have been like, well, who's going to get in? I mean, I've got to, my, my righteousness has to exceed the, the heroes of the faith. Mm-hmm. And that's where Jesus launches in to, to basically say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, yeah. I'm going deeper. Like, this is what it means for your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees, basically. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it would be pretty easy to read this section, or if you're one of the people hearing it, like if you're in this audience when Jesus is delivering the sermon, like um, this this can be pretty devastating. Like there's not a lot of uplift coming from this, like especially if you think you're a, maybe you don't think you're a good person, but you're like basically okay. Like I have avoided killing anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the most easy thing to say, yes, I've done it. Like I have not slain my neighbor. Um, but Jesus is saying that like, that is not something that you can, that's not something that's sufficient for you to rest upon as having done righteousness. And, uh, it's, it's also too, that Jesus is saying it's not enough to do righteousness in quotes, but you have to be righteous. Mm -hmm. Now, it falls apart a little bit because you can't actually do righteousness without being righteous. But like, it's not enough to do things in pursuit of righteousness. You actually have to be righteous. It's not enough to abstain from committing adultery. You actually have to be a person who respects um, people of the opposite sex enough to not like lust after them. Uh, with dirty thoughts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you actually have to be a person of righteousness. You have to be righteous. Um, that's what the law is trying to drive you to. The law is not trying to just get you to perform righteous things or avoid doing bad things. Sure. Yep. And, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to expose people, and rightfully so. I mean, you just said, I mean, if you read this, you're, you're brought up short. And I, I ran across a, a quote this morning from J. Gresham Machen, Uh, And he said, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus held up an unattainable ideal. He has revealed the depths of human guilt. He has made demands far too lofty for human strength. But thank God he has washed it away with his demands. He has given strengths to fulfill them. 
And so, I mean, you've got to talk about the three uses of the law, just like you would with the law and the prophets as you approach the Sermon on the Mount, too. I mean, the first use of the law, obviously, is to restrain evil. Um, the second use of the law, though, is what Machen's getting at here. It's an unattainable ideal that's meant to drive you to the mm-hmm. one that can fulfill the law and the prophets, yeah. which Jesus talks about in this um, summary uh, verses like, that you hit upon. And then once we go to him uh, and trust in him, the one who's fulfilled the law, he sends us back out to actually um, and gives us strength to to follow his new way of life that he's painting here. Now, obviously, this side of heaven, we're never going to attain perfection. Right. Um, we're always going to struggle with lustful thoughts. We're always going to struggle with anger in our hearts and not forgiving those that have wronged us and keeping our word. But Jesus is trying to paint a picture for us that drives us to him, helps us rest in him, and then seek his strength so that we might move out in experience progressive sanctification, you might say, or growth in these areas, growth in holiness. This is holiness. Um, and, and it's not external, it is internal. Um, I mean, the Pharisees would make laws upon laws so that they wouldn't break laws, <laughs> you know? I mean, they were all about external. Um, they would craft extra-biblical laws so they didn't break biblical laws, and they were always concerned with what they looked like, basically. Now, Jesus never, I mean, he does say that in different words, um, but Jesus is basically saying, it doesn't matter what you look like, it matters who you are inside um, in this Sermon on the Mount. Yep. Um, let's see. We've hit briefly on lust, divorce. I think we talked about anger. Um, just by way of summary, Jesus also covers oaths, basically saying that um, there's no need for you to. Um, well, he says, <clears throat> "You've heard it said. Um, again, you have heard that it was said uh, of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord whatever you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all.'" So he's basically saying, "Don't swear by God or by God's throne or by His footstool or by Jerusalem. Like you say, yes, that's enough. If you say no, it's enough. And you should be a person of honest enough character. You should have the righteousness so that that's sufficient." Um, Regarding retaliation, this is the, uh, um, you know, if anyone strikes you, turn the other cheek portion, basically the other side of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, Then Jesus also covers loving your enemies. Basically, um, there's there's no use if you love those that love you and hate those who persecute you, but Jesus is calling um, so basically like what good is that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So th- these just a couple of more examples to this. And I think that final verse, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect is, um, the, like I, I read the mm-hmm. sermon on the Mount, even as a Christian, and it is devastating to me because, and that final verse there, verse 48 is like the final nail in it. It's like, that can kind of that can wreck a person, um, and I think if if you're reading it and it, it it wrecks you if you if you recognize the standard that Jesus is holding against, and you're like, how could I or anybody ever attain this standard that Jesus says I have to have? My righteousness must exceed the Pharisees if I'm to enter into heaven. Like this is a um, like the Sermon on the Mount is often preached through and these are are taken as kind of um nice little um sayings that are 
that you can knit on a cushion or something. But like this, this can be a, this is significantly demoralizing. Um, if you don't understand that, um, Jesus is doing all of this to point you to himself, to basically mm-hmm. recognize how you can't live up to the standard that the law actually is. It's not that he's saying this law isn't there anymore and I have a different one for you. Mm-hmm. He's saying that this law, you've heard it said this because that's what the like the text says, but I say to you, I as the one who gave the law am saying to you, this is what it means. When he says you have heard it said, it's not that you have heard it's not that you have read in the Torah, this is the law. It's you have heard your teachers say, mm-hmm. do not commit adultery. But Jesus, as the one who wrote that command, who gave that command to Moses to, to chisel into tablets, is saying, this is what I actually mean by that. Mm-hmm. This is the heart of somebody who doesn't commit adultery. This is the heart of somebody who is not angry against their brother. This is the heart of somebody um, who who does... who." who seeks fairness um, when there's a wrong done to them. Yep. You know um, what it is, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, is Jesus is highlighting, practically speaking, what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in action. Because, I mean, you can think about it in different ways. You think about oaths, when he talks about it in verse 33 to 37. Oaths are a convention designed to restrain lies yeah. and false promises. In truthfulness, a fruit of the Spirit, um, is Jesus's central concern in this passage, us being truth tellers. Um, and so uh, let us be so truthful that someone who knows us well would never have to solicit a vow from yeah. us, right? Um, you think about restraining evil, um, ban on retaliation, for instance. Um, you know, someone takes your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Don't devote yourselves to defending your honor and avenging all affronts. He wants us to show kindness, uh, in grace to those who insult us. Um, and so, you know, you kind of move through this and you see um, love your neighbor as yourself. The law always points us towards love. Disciples leave judgment and show mercy to others. Um, and so all of these external things, um, uh, you know, Jesus is, is pushing them aside and saying, I'm getting to the heart of things, love, mercy, truthfulness, kindness, gentleness. Um, and I just can't help but think of the fruit of the spirit here too. Yeah. Um, so, uh, because the fruit of the spirit obviously is internal, um, and you can't always see that. Um, but it, it makes perfect sense if Jesus is going for our motivations that that would also come into mind. Just a quick observation as well. I, I think the, uh, as you guys were talking, this gives, uh, further credence to it. The question, I think, at the beginning or the introduction, we we're talking about, well, who is who is in the crowd? And you know, we go off the word disciples um, early in Matthew, but listening to the way that Jesus is talking, the presuppositions are very interesting because the presupposition is that the people listening to him actually care, right? So. Mm-hmm. It, it's the pre- you've heard it said, okay, well, he's talking to people who actually want to hear about this. Uh, and so that really adds more to the weight of who is likely in this crowd. It's people who had some modicum of interest yep. in the law, in things of God, and uh-huh. who knew all these things. So when he's making these references, uh, the presupposition is that you know what I'm talking about. Um, 
that and the other thing is that in the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I think they were more downstream commentators of the law, if, if I understand correctly, which is a lot of their laws weren't rewriting Mosaic law. They were kind of using it and then adding on to it downstream to apply to different situations. They never shot above it. Mm-hmm. So they were always working kind of like in, a, in, in modern day, they're working with precedents. So you have law, and then they were trying to apply that law to different situations and say, okay, well, here's how that applies here. Mm-hmm. But, and, so they, and so they got very detailed and into the minutia of life in application of these laws. And it's clear as day yep. why these guys did not like Jesus because he's not talking like that. He's mm-hmm. not talking as a guy who's really caring a lot about precedents and their commentary on the Mosaic law. He's shooting right above it mm-hmm. and saying, no, I'm not really going to play your game and get into the minutia with your silly details and how you apply Mosaic yep. precedents. Oh, yeah. I'm shooting right over the top of it. Well, I mean, in many ways, the the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes was a facade. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus wanted his disciples righteousness to be internal authentic from the inside and you bring up a great point g in the first thing that you mentioned when you're reading the gospels one of the things i'm always thinking about is who are the characters that are involved in the scene and so you can always place yourself in the shoes of different characters and everybody's interested for different reasons normally Mm -hmm. the pharisees and the scribes are skeptical or angry they're interested for nefarious purposes, right. you might who is say. This, who is this guy yeah. rewriting the law? You've got disciples who are committed, who are interested for very, you might say, pure reasons. Um, and then you've got those that are on the fence, those that are just kind of listening in. And they're interested enough, mm-hmm. but they're being evangelized to. Yeah. And so you can always put yourself or you know make application based on those different characters that might or might not apply to you or your friends and your neighbors, depending on their relationship to Jesus. Because everybody that confronts Jesus on the pages of the Gospels, it has a different relationship to him, right? And it's just an interesting, yeah. um, if, you, if you're doing your personal devotion through the Gospels stories, it's, an, it's, an, it's a good way to draw out application. Well, what did a skeptic think? When Jesus said, what does a disciple, a committed disciple think when Jesus says this? What does a Pharisee who relies on their own self-righteousness uh, think when Jesus says this? Um, just a good good way to yeah. read the scriptures. Well, Michael, I've exhausted my notes for this evening. I know you said you had another two hours of fresh content that you wanted to go through. <laughs> I don't think I said that. <laughs> oh, man. But... but uh, Final thoughts. Yeah, final. I love what you were up. saying, Jacob. The longer you the sermon goes on, the more demanding it get it gets, and our ability to keep it its requirements yeah. grows progressively more difficult. And so, I mean, you pointed out it ends. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the conclusion. And then two weeks from now, because we're taking next week off uh, due to some um, some travel. Um, uh, he he then moves out to talk about um, our uh, religious duties. Yeah, um, what does it look like to fulfill those spiritual disciplines? And once again, he's going to hammer in on the Pharisees and the scribes a little bit as yeah. bad examples, uh, and encourage his disciples to 
I don't yeah. want to say do better because that wouldn't be Christ's message, right? But um, this is also why you can't, um, when people talk about the law gospel distinction, it's traditionally like a Lutheran designation, but uh, increasingly I hear Reformed folks talk, use it too. It's not Old Testament versus New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. The gospel is all through oh, the sure. Old Testament. And here you have Jesus himself, the gospel, the the gospel in a person, like the most hard-nosed law passage in, in the whole Bible in some ways. So, yep. Yep. Cool. All right, folks. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of TGC Midweek. We'll be back with you in two weeks' time to continue the series on the Sermon of the Mount. If you've got questions, we'd love to receive them. You can send those questions to questions at trinitygracesa.org. Until next time, we'll see you later.